edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 18th, 2019, and this is episode 2403 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Monday, that means I'm back from a weekend. And boy, it was a get-shit-done weekend. Uh, a little bit, I'll tell you a little bit about the weekend and what, some of the things I got done. I'm interested in hearing from you guys all the time what you guys get done over a weekend. <clears throat> Honestly, I got a few emails from people this weekend that, that told me about things that they got done this weekend, especially some of you guys had a little tie in a spring break or something with that. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, it, at least once a year, especially around this time, we get into the tax season, um, I'll get an email about one of these things where you don't have to pay your income tax. I'm going to tell you today why not paying your taxes is stupid. It will result in misery. Now, I'm not saying that if you, if I actually thought you could not pay your taxes and get away with it and not have extreme risk of your life being destroyed, I'd be all for it. Not paying your taxes if you can is smart. Not paying your taxes because some dumbass that wrote a book he sells online said you don't have to is really, really stupid. Uh, we're, I have some questions coming in about Beta O'Rourke. No, I didn't misspell it. Beta. Beta O'Rourke. Uh, Liz Warren and blah, blah, Green New Deal, and we're even going to talk a little bit about the Green New Deal today and all this, but basically I'm going to tell you why I'm not even paying remote attention to Ask Clown Circus 2020 yet, and it might help you just kind of like pull back from this, even if you're a political person, right? I just When you hear my rationale here, you might go, you know what, no matter how wound up I'm going to get about this, I don't need to do it right now. I don't need to root right now. Don't make me play the circus music, because I will. For those that are new, Ask Clown Circus is code for election season. Ask Clown Circus 2020 is the 2020 election. Uh, next, we're going to talk about another step forward for driverless vehicles right here in Texas. Homesteading with ducks and making baby ducks. Yeah. The truth about the Sandy Hook lawsuit against Remington Arms, and why you shouldn't get all wound up about that just yet anyway. Um... I've been saying that modern education is going to be dying and going to a death spiral. I said that, like, you know, like, so I said something crazy. You know, like, in 10 to 15 years, like, half of U.S. universities won't even be here. Or at least, if the university's here, like, it will be half of its size. Like, basically a 50% reduction in what we think of as conventional higher education. I was told I'm crazy for that by a lot of you guys, right? You guys listen to me, you like me, you think I'm usually right, but I'm just nuts about this. Guess who's making my exact prediction now? Harvard professor. Yeah, Harvard professor. Um, Tim Ferriss just sent out an, a, a newsletter. He's talking about the self-policing monkeys. I, I don't know if he knows that's what he's talking about, but he is. I'll talk about how his observations are spot on, but it really goes back to the self-policing monkeys. Uh, the real lesson in the recent Facebook and Instagram outage, not if If you don't use them, you don't know, but Facebook and Instagram are like down for like a day and a half. And now you're thinking, ah, oh, screw the millennials. No, this is this is for people that have brands online. This is an important lesson. Uh, why I say the government is lying, again, this time about a mumps infection on a U.S. warship and what it really means. And what is a Fenord? We will talk about Fenords. And it is becoming apparent now that what I said about the Green New Deal is a perfect example of of a Trump-like extreme position. If that doesn't make any sense, it will when we cover it. 
We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. <clears throat> Sponsor of the day, number one today, RidgeWallet.com. You want to be a minimalist? I do. Minimalizing is great. You know, when I first got into prepping, I got into the whole EDC thing and realized, like, I don't have an EDC. I need to have an EDC. And I realized I did, but it was lacking. So, like, most people, like, kind of ran away with it, and you end up like Batman with a utility belt. It's ridiculous. And then you learn to pare down. Well, one of the places you can start paring down right away is with your wallet, with a minimalist approach from Ridge Wallet, a smaller, smarter wallet that protects you from identity theft. You can learn more at RidgeWallet.com. And remember, MSB members, you do get a discount uh, to Ridge Wallet through the MSB. Next up today, JM Bullion. You know, I, I believe in cash. I believe in you know securities. I believe in conventional investments. I believe in real estate. I believe in a very uh, broad approach to how you manage your wealth. But one thing I will always say is that some portion of your wealth should be in gold and silver. And I mean physical gold and silver that you can put your hands on, that you can touch you can hand down to future heirs, that you can transfer wealth with completely privately. We have thousands of years of history of using silver and gold as money. It's never been worthless, and it never will be. Now, does that mean that you should run out tomorrow, liquidate your kid's college fund, and put all the money into silver and gold? No, that is stupid talk. I recommend 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. And I, I actually tend more to the 5%, by the way, guys. I always The 10% is kind of like, well, if you really want a, a stronger position, this is kind of my upper limit. 5% is my solid recommendation for most people. And uh, But the thing is, when you're buying silver and gold, silver is silver, gold is gold. It's all the same. So why would you pay more for it? And the answer is you shouldn't. So the best pricing I can find online or otherwise is jambullion.com. All your orders ship free. They do a discount for the MSB. And if something goes wrong, and it seldom does, but if something does go wrong, I can get their president, Michael, in, I can get direct contact with him in moments by email. I can't offer you that from any other silver and gold house. That's why they're not here, and JM Bullion is. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Yeah, I mentioned MSB there. JM Bullion gives you a discount. Ridge Wall gives you a discount. Most of our sponsors give you a discount, and a whole bunch of other people give you discounts, about 80. And the announcement went out over the weekend, so a lot of you maybe didn't get it uh, this week. I was kind of really in a, a, a ramble last week to get things done because I took a day off to spend with my grandson. Uh, so things got a little out of sequence. So I brought a new discount vendor onto MSB, and this is a big one. Um, I brought uh, Blair uh, Wanderlich onto the show a few weeks ago, maybe almost a month ago now, uh, from Hemp Magic. And she's part of the board of advisors there. She doesn't own the company. And we talked about CBD oils. And Hemp Magic had sent me some sample product. I ordered some more. I became comfortable with the product. Um, I looked at the laboratory analysis of the product, which I think is important when you're ordering CBD oil. They should be able to give you a laboratory analysis by batch of what you're actually getting or you don't know what you're getting. And I have become very, very fond of CBD oil. I didn't think I would um, find as much utility in it. I use their product primarily, uh, the one I use is called Rest Plus. Uh, being older, I have a lot of aches, pains, and things like that. And usually things like turmeric actually work pretty well in the aches and pains. There are times when I really push myself, especially as I'm getting older now. I'm headed for 50 fast, guys. Um, and it's not just that I'm achy. I can't, I can't be still when I try to go to sleep. I can be dead tired, and I can't sleep. Um, I take this stuff. It doesn't wipe me out like maybe make me go to sleep. It makes all of that agitated muscle just go away, and it's almost instant. And then I can go to sleep. And I think that CBD oil, I've heard enough from vets that are dealing with PTSD. I've heard enough from people that deal with neurological symptoms that I am sold on CBD oil. 
Well, Hemp Magic came to me and they made me an offer. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell you what they made me. If you haven't read the announcement, you tell me you think what I you know in your head answer. What do you what what do you think Jack would do in this situation? They came to me and said, Jack, here's what we want to do. We want to give you. Uh, the ability to give your uh, MSB members a 10% discount on all Hemp Magic CBD products, and we'll pay you a 10% referral for everybody that orders through your link in, in your MSB. So you'll get 10% of the sale, and your listeners will get 10% off. Sweet deal. It's not a bad deal, is it? What do you think I did? I mean, if you've been around a while, and you know me, and you know the way I view my job as your advocate with MSB, what do you think I did? You know what I did. I said, well, that's nice. Um, so what you're saying is you have 20% margin to work with in this program. So here's what I want. I want you to give that 20% to my listeners as a straight discount. If you do, we'll make the deal, and I'll get you out at the MSB. If you don't, I don't want your deal because I know what you can do now. And they said, okay. So I got you guys a discount of 20% on CBD oil. Um, if you are a person that wants to use high-quality CBD oil in your life and you check out Hemp Magic and you like them, because you know it's up to you whether you like a supplier or not. I'm sold. Then at this point, MSB is a no-brainer. It's it's literally a no-brainer. Um, if you even use it, you know, as needed type basis a few times uh, a week, a couple times a week, something like that, um, then there's no way that you don't get your money back from MSB from this one alone. So I think it's a huge discount. Wanted to let you guys know about that. Do you be careful? I, I just learned that actually technically CBD oil is illegal in Tarrant County, Texas. Technically it's illegal in Texas. Um, it's clearly not being enforced because I can go show you 20 shops selling CBD oil in Texas right now. I can show you an article of a police officer saying he goes to the store and buys CBD oil. It's a, the, the whole world is a mess with this right now, but just don't flaunt it. Don't drive around in the car with it is kind of what I would say when it comes to CBD products. I think you're just better off. You never know when you're going to run into the wrong guy that wants to try to ruin your life. Uh, my nephew, who's going to school in, in the Midwest, um, he tells me that he he has seen cops there just going crazy about this. Like they're 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 like every time they pull college kids over, like where's the weed? We know you got weed in the car. You better not have any weed. And, and, they, and if they find a CBD product, they're 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 lighting the kid up for it. So just be smart about it, but I, I think in most places it's now been accepted CBD is not going to get you high. It doesn't do that. Um, I can tell you for – I already knew that, but I can tell you now as, as having used it uh, for specific physical reasons that there's absolutely nothing even approaching the remoteness of a high from CBD oil. So I don't think it's a backdoor to that, uh, but I do think it's a great deal. I'm glad that I got it for you. Uh, and let's move on and start talking about the feedback for the show today. Um, I, uh, like I said, I get these, um, emails about this time every year. This one came in from Tommy it was a couple weeks ago and I dug it out of the spam box. Remember, if you send me an email for a show like this today, put, uh, TSPC in the subject line, send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Bottom line up front, give me your question or your point, then give me your details and you might get on the air. So I, I ran a search. For all of the filtered emails, and I found this one. I thought we got to talk about this. It gives me a link to a place called LostHorizons.com, and I did put a link in the show notes because I think it would be wrong not to. But I also put there. I think if you give these people money or listen to them, you are stupid. So I just want to be clear. I'm not, just because I link to something does not make it an endorsement. Uh, Tommy says I have a buddy who's a full believer in this system, who has had success as far as getting his taxes paid 
the previous year returned to him, and not having state or federal tax withheld from his paychecks, he has started the process for his family members as well. To me, it seems too good to be true. I don't want to tangle with the IRS or have to look over my shoulder in the future. <clears throat> I'm sure you have knowledge of his system, but if not, it basically says taxes are only owed by employees of the federal government. Thanks, Tommy. Okay, so this has come up so many times in so many different forms and in so many different flavors. And probably one of the, uh, the, 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 the most prominent people to ever bring this concept to light and tell people you don't have to pay your taxes is a guy named Erwin Schiff. Erwin Schiff is the father of Peter Schiff, well-known economist, etc. Erwin uh, Schiff died in prison with his hands shackled to a bed as an old man because they threw him in there for tax evasion. He had already been to prison for tax evasion, got back out, did it again, they put him back in. I'll put a video today that, that, that Peter Schiff actually put, so this is a, a, a better memory of his father than him uh, going to prison, yet it ends with him going to prison. Um, let me try to explain a couple of the things that are going on here so that you can understand why these things are not a good idea. Um, number one, they'll say there is no law that says you have to pay taxes. There's not a law that directly says you must pay taxes under these circumstances. What there is is congressional authority granted to the IRS, an IRS code that says you got to file and pay your taxes. All right? Now, there's been different ways people have sold this idea. Since you don't have income, you don't have to, you don't have to file. Uh, sooner or later, you get caught if you do that. It, it, it does work because you don't file, so you don't, you know, if you do enough withholding on your check or whatever, you don't pay federal taxes, right? Um, there, Peter Schiff's uh, dad's formula, his second one, the one that landed him in prison a second time, uh, was that you report zero income. Because under their definition of income, as an employee, you don't have income. Uh, look, I, I'll explain to you why it seems these things seem to work. When you file your taxes and you put down that you had zero income or that you uh, have a million dollars in deductions or whatever you put down, it gets processed. No one really looks at it at that time. Sometimes something might get flagged for immediate review and potentially for an audit. But in general, you file, the thing goes through, it either says you owe or you don't owe, you send them a check so they got it, you didn't send them a check and they didn't, so now you owe more money, or they owe you money and they send you a check. And you could even do this, you could refile last year's taxes, change your numbers, and they'll give you a refund for 100% of what you pay. You can get the money. That's not the problem. The problem is that sooner or later, eventually, something triggers a, 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 a review, not necessarily an audit. And you're going to get a letter that says you owe them $25,000 plus interest and penalties. Now you owe them $80,000 or something like that. And they will destroy your life to get the money. They may even put you in jail. They may even put you in prison. Who knows? But you're not going to get away with it forever. Now, the thing is, you might. Because you said, I have an uncle whose college's former roommate named Tommy who knew another guy named Bill, and Bill's been doing it for 25 years and he never hears nothing about it. Okay, that's a possibility. But if Bill ever pops, Bill's life is going to be destroyed. They will not let you get away with this. If not, 
Erwin Schiff wouldn't have died in prison. There's I can't think of her name, but it's like Shelly or Sheila or something like that. She's a former IRS agent. She goes around doing seminars, telling people this. She even pays her taxes, by the way. They threw her in federal prison for telling people this. And I know somebody's going to say, well, that just proves that she's right. No, no, that proves that when it comes to enforcement of taxes in this country, the IRS can get away with anything. If you do this, you're playing with fire. Let's talk about why people believe it. Because wouldn't it be great, that's why. They believe it for the same reason that people will sit around once in a while and fantasize and say, if I win the lottery, I'm going to buy this piece of property and it's going to be like this. And I'm going to do this for my family and friends. And I'm going to have this, I'm going to have that. And when people hear things that sound too good to be true, even when they know it, they often like to fantasize for a little bit of a while. But what if it is? This is why people buy into Ponzi schemes, right? This is why people fall for scams. This is why people buy ebooks to tell you how to make your manhood bigger or something like that. And, and it's, it's why these merchants do this. Now, that's all I got to say on this because the concept itself is preposterous. The, it really is that you're, you're going to get away without paying taxes and never have a consequence. And again, like I'm saying, you might. You might fall through the cracks. Tommy's first cousin's college former roommate named Bill might actually get away with it. But if you get caught, you will not be able to say, here's a book I got on the Internet, and it says you guys are wrong, and here's a bunch of Supreme Court precedents, and therefore I'm not guilty. They'll look at you. They'll laugh at you. They'll seize your assets if you have any. If you have no money, they will send you to jail. This is what's going to happen. So... If you want to believe in this fantasy, go ahead. Please don't waste. I know somebody right now. You don't know, Jack. I hear the keys. I have been doing this for 21 years, and you're so stupid, and you don't know. They're never going. They can't do anything because there was this court decision in 1921 and the Supreme. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't bother emailing me that, though, because I'm not willing to partake in your delusion. Because somebody gets away with something, doesn't mean that it's legal. It doesn't mean they won't eventually get caught. If you just look at criminal activity as a whole, look at the number of murders that go unsolved every year. That does not mean murder is legal, unless the government does it. I'll give you that. Look at the number of property crimes. You know, Look at the number of people driving around with an expired registration on their vehicle. Just because people get away with something doesn't mean that it's legal. It doesn't mean it's something you want to play with. Um, next up, I want to real quick talk about the election. Uh, the, uh, hold on, wait, let me, let me frame it properly. The most important election of our life. I can't even do it. I can't even pretend to do it anymore. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. All right, so Ask Cloud Circus 2020 is, is kicking off. Uh, Beta Iraq, and yes, I said Beta, has entered the race. Uh, the fake Indian is in the race. Camilla Harris is in the race. I, Cory Booker. There's like 18 people in the race. I, I just heard this morning Jeb Bush says somebody needs to challenge Trump on the Republican side. Go ahead, Jeb. That'll be a laugh. I, 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 here's a prediction. If Jeb Bush uh, announces a primary challenge to President Trump, Trump won't even really campaign. He will just keep doing what he's doing, campaigning for the, for the, the, the general election, and occasionally slam you know, whoever it is, including Jeb, and it won't even be close. Um, love him or hate him, 
among Republicans, Trump's approval rating is in the high 90s. I mean, it's, it's, it's through the roof. Like, that's almost never the case. Uh, with anybody on either side of the aisle, even if they'll back them, will they say, well, you're completely pleased with them? No. All right, so you, you can hate them all you want. He's incredibly popular with the Republicans, so that's not going to happen. But here's, here's what I want to try to help some of you guys dial back down the concern about something that's not happening for almost two years. All right? Um, <laughs> let's look at it like a sporting event. So I'm a football fan, sort of, but what I really am is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. If you've watched the show, listened to the show, or paid attention to my videos or anything for any length of time, you know that uh, probably every third or fourth video I put out, I'm either wearing a Steelers hat or a shirt or something. I like the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I, I like football, okay? Um, even with that said, like when the season starts and it's in preseason, I kind of look over and see how everybody's doing. Did anybody get hurt? Is this new guy working out? I don't really watch preseason football. When the football season begins, because I like the Steelers, if the Steelers are on and I can watch a Steelers game, well, I'll watch it. But, like, you know, the, the Panthers are playing the Titans for Monday Night Football. First week of the year. First game of the season. You know, first Monday Night Football year. Yeah, man. You know, I'm saving up my amount of football I can watch without my wife complaining about it for when it actually matters. Because you have all these teams in the beginning and only a handful of them are going to make it to the playoffs. And the playoffs are all that really matters and in the end all that matters is the Super Bowl. That's how I look at Ask Clown Circus 2020 except no one in the whole thing is the Pittsburgh Steelers. So Even in the end, I'm not going to care that much. So it's more like basketball or baseball, right? So, you know, I'm from Texas, and I live, you know, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So it pleases me when the Texas Rangers do well or the Dallas Mavericks do well. You know, it, it's just good for the city, and there's a little bit of pride there. I don't run out and buy a T-shirt at the, you know, if they make the series or something like that, I, and give me a bandwagon jumper. But you know, I smile a little bit if they they do well and and what have you. But I don't even really care until they at least get there, you know. And then when the World Series is on, unless somebody's there that I care about, I don't even watch it. But even if I did, I wouldn't be worried about it when there's 150 games to be played. And 28 or 32 or however many teams are in the league now, I don't care. I'm suggesting you just look at Aston Circus 2020 that way. It just doesn't matter. Whatever's going to be is going to be. Your opinion about a particular individual at all is going to have no effect on who wins the nomination. Um, you want a prediction? Uh, as, uh, here. Okay. Joe Biden, being an astute politician who has always wanted to be president, is asking himself only one question right now. Can I beat Donald Trump? That is the only question he's asking himself. If he thinks the, the possibility is high enough, he will enter the race and destroy the competition on the Democrat side. That's a prediction. That's not, I'm telling you this is going to happen, or I'm even saying that if Biden gets in, I'm going to tell you 100% it's going to happen. That's my instinct on this. Still don't really care. Um, uh, absent Biden... Huh. could get interesting. You got kind of a, right now you'd have a showdown between Sanders and, and Beta. Um, communist versus Beta male. I don't know. Uh, it's too far away to care. It's too far. I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change my life. It really isn't. 
But what if we get a socialist? We'll deal with that shit when it happens. But for the next year, nothing really matters. And the reason Biden's holding out right now is, one, he's asking himself, if I'm going to go through all this shit again, do I have a chance to win? Number two, if you actually have a chance to win, the best thing you can do is quietly fundraise, organize, and hold out and come in right at the end. Because what it's what it's like doing is everybody's running a marathon, you know, and three miles before the marathon's done, somebody pulls up in a pickup truck, pulls over, and you jump out of the back and get in the race. That if you are a front runner, that's exactly what you're doing. So there's what's going on. But if you keep me like, well, what do you think about Cory Booker? What do you think about Kamala Harris? What about Elizabeth Warren? I don't care. I don't care. It's week one in basketball, and I don't like basketball. And if the Mavericks or you know uh, Houston or San Antonio gets in, maybe I'll look at the playoffs. But eh, it's so far away. I need to go out and plant peppers. I mean, really, that's how I feel. Um, on that, I did want to tell you a little bit about the weekend. So this weekend was beautiful. I got a lot done this weekend. Uh, completely rehabbed my aviary, all my grow beds in there. Planted like 36 peppers, eight tomatoes, something like that. 32 peppers, eight tomatoes, 40 plants total. Uh, completely did all my four by four beds, and I put out a video today that's on YouTube that you can take a look at. I walk through the property, you can see the stuff that I did this weekend. Uh, you can see the ducks, but the big thing is you can see how the property looks. It looks amazing. It looks amazing. For, it is very hard to believe. That two weeks ago, we had temperatures in the high teens, uh, looking at everything right now. And most of the fruit trees got through it. Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome out right now. So if you want to take, check that out, I'll have a, a link in the show notes to the video. And another little shout-out for the daily email, guys. I, I do a daily email. It is just basically everything that, new that goes on the blog and little things like the video and stuff as well, new MSB vendors, whatever. It's one email. It'll be somewhere between three and five bullet points. It's just text and a link. That's all that it is. That's pretty much all that I send out. And, of course, I don't share your name or your information because I'm not stupid. Uh, you're stupid if you sell your customer list to your competitors. That's dumb. So I don't do that. So if you're not a subscriber to the mail list, get on it. And I, I wanted to – this is a weird thing that started happening recently. It didn't happen for 10 years doing the show. I'll get an email from somebody. I joined the MSB like three months ago. I haven't gotten any emails about the show since I joined. Um, that's because they're not related. The MSB is how you support the show. You get discounts and stuff like that. Occasionally, I do email stuff only to MSB. But the daily email for the show is, is free to anybody that wants it. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click sub subscribe, and fill out a list. And if you don't want to be on the list anymore, click the link to unsubscribe. Don't compl I, It's weird. It doesn't hurt me. But I look at my stats, you know, because I'm a, I, I run a business. You look at your stats. And about, you know, every day I get one to three complaints about the email that I send. What is wrong with you people that complain about it? Why don't you just unsubscribe from it? My Lord. Anyway, um, next up we have a, another email that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, but it comes from John, and it is on self-driving vehicles. And, you know, not a one of these future-looking, the whole world is going to be driverless pretty soon. Um, this is something that is happening right now, being rolled out right now. It's already been going on in Arkansas. Uh, let me read you a little bit of the article, though. First, there came self-checkout. Now it's self-driving cars to make the delivery. 
Two Kroger markets in Houston are rolling out a self-driving car program in which orders can be placed online and delivered right to your door without a driver. The self-driving service will be offered in stores in South Post Oak Road and Buffalo Speedway uh, per ABC 13. Those in Texas can access the service from zip code 77401, 77 blah, blah, blah. It's like five zip codes uh, for the same or next day delivery. The delivery service was uh, conceived by robotics company Neuro, founded by two ex-Google employees. Kroger and Neuro have been working together last year for a trial run in Scottsdale, Arizona, before they started this year's expansion. The company has reportedly completed thousands of driverless deliveries within the Arizona market. And it goes on from there, and you can read it, and you go look at this little cool little car thing that clearly is a driverless vehicle, because there's no front windshield in it for a passenger. This is a cargo vehicle. Um So this technology exists. It's only getting better. All the naysayers about the technology's capability are wrong. I actually wanted to talk to you about one of the things holding it back right now. Uh, for things like this, um, grocery store delivery. So let's think about this. Just, just for a minute, let's think about this. What is the huge savings here for Kroger right now to be able to deliver your groceries without a human? using one of these robot cars? And the answer is, not much, if anything. Uh, the delivery fee is like six bucks, and this car will come out and bring you your groceries. Uh, if they paid an 18-year-old kid that was like a pizza guy to drive around delivering groceries, how much does that really cost them to employ that guy for a week? I mean, you're probably looking at a job that pays about 10 bucks an hour plus tips or something like that because when you do that kind of delivery work, I did it as a kid, by the way. I delivered groceries for a local grocery store in Minersville, Pennsylvania called The Economy, Rizavich's IGA Economy Store, and uh, I would get tips. Sometimes I'd get like a buck or two, which I know it sounds like not much, but, you know, when you're, when you're 16 and it's 1987, uh, a couple dollars to, uh, to take an old lady three bags of groceries, not bad money. Because you're getting paid by the hour to drive, and then you get the tips, and, you know, it was pretty good. Uh, it was actually like a, a gig I had to, like, try to get when I could. There was a guy that worked at the store, like, he was a full-time employee, uh, and it was, like, a thing they let him do because he made extra money. But, like, whenever he wasn't available, I got to do the deliveries. You know, and sometimes you'd, you'd haul, like, 20 groceries up these huge flights of stairs for the old and she'd give you a quarter. Uh, so, you know, it, but you, you, you know what I'm saying. You know, I was making, I think, $4.50 an hour. Back then, so if I went out for two hours delivering groceries and I made ten dollars in tips, you know I effectively doubled my income, more than doubled because you didn't pay any tax on it. But it, it didn't cost economy that much money to employ me to do that. So how much do you really save with a driverless vehicle delivering fifty, a hundred dollars worth of groceries? So the only way this type of service can work is if it can scale massively. And it can make the overall operations more efficient. And I don't know that it can just yet in this place. The place that it has the most potential for disruption is moving things like between stores, like semi over the road, uh, and moving people, i.e. like Uber-type services and stuff like that. But I, I think this can work, but it it's going to be limited in this capacity. Right now, there's nothing to stop you know grocery deliveries from happening everywhere. And I think groceries is still one of those things that people kind of want to look at their peppers and they want to look at their tomatoes and they don't really know what they want and they walk the aisles and they pick stuff out. Um, it's going to probably be the case that when 
you have software that makes it almost like you're there, almost virtual reality level. So you can basically shop the grocery store and then everything shows up. That may be what it, I don't know, but I I don't think that I, I think we're here's what I'm trying to get to. I think we're getting to a point where the technology is going to come far enough, fast enough that what will hold back some of the driverless technologies is reluctance of the user to trust it, and the financial viability, is it worth an $80,000 robot car to replace a $9-an-hour driver? See what I'm saying? That So either you got to get to where you can make the robot car for one year's wages or less of a $10-an-hour employee, and it has to do double the work, Or you got to find a different application for the concept of driverless. Which I, here's something else I thought was interesting. When I typed "driversless" into uh, WordPress, and my browser has spell check, "driverless" comes up as being spelled improperly. It's not a word yet, according to the dictionary people, I guess. But I think it's going to be one soon. Uh, that is one of those predictions that you can take to the bank. I am saying that that. Probably by the end of, if not this year, next year, the dictionary people will accept driverless as a standalone word. Real quick one here from Jeff. Jeff says, I have a couple duck questions for you, Jack. Well, that's good. I have duck answers. Uh, do ducks need grit? And how many drakes do you need to have if I'm wanting babies? Thanks to Jeff in Illinois. The answer to both questions, dun, 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 it. Come say it with me, class. It, duh. Old lady underpants. Yeah, it depends, right? It depends. And you guys know that I answer so many questions. on. So let's start with, do ducks need grit? Class A, it depends. I should look up how to say depends in Spanish. Class A, <laughs> dígame, yeah, estas, dependas, right? You know. Anyway, so it depends. So what do I mean by that? I do not provide my ducks grit. Why? I have a three-acre property. The ducks in general have access to two acres of it at any one time. There's little bits of rock and grit all over the place. And the ducks have no need of supplemental grit because there's plenty of stuff for them to use as grit where and as they see fit. If we were keeping ducks in a penned-up area that did not offer them sufficient grit, then yes, I would offer them grit in the form of crushed, uh, crushed oyster shells, probably about the best. I do provide grit to my quail, For that exact reason, since they're in an aviary, there is a dirt floor in there, and they can probably get some stuff, but I just think it's so easy, I go ahead and do it. However, if you were to provide some form of grit uh, for ducks, I don't think it would hurt them. So it's it's you don't probably need it with free-range ducks or tractor ducks or whatever, uh, penned-up ducks definitely, but it wouldn't hurt either way. Do ducks need grit? And number two, how many drakes do you need if you want babies? Class A? It, estas dependas, right? You know, it depends. I'm really, I'm gonna have to look that up after I get done today. So I know, I, I, I actually speak quite a bit of Spanish and I, I don't think, uh, depende? I don't know, man. I've never had need to find. See, here's a, here's a little aside. I, I'll post stuff on Facebook once in a while and be like, uh, you know, something will come up and I'll, I'll, I'll point out like, oh, yeah, advanced calculus is needed for this or whatever. And I always get some of the math nerds out there going, well, actually, I've used calculus a lot in my life because, and my response is always what? What do you think it is? Humans learn what they need when they need to learn it, right? So anyway, so we, we learn what we need uh, when we need to learn it. And when it comes to ducks, it's pretty easy to figure out. So 
Uh, or, I'm sorry, the word depends, right? It, I'll learn how to say it because now I want to know. But on the ducks, generally speaking, how many birds do you have? If you have four, so let's first of all define what the words are. Technically, ducks are girls and drakes are boys, right? We really don't use hens and, and roosters in the duck world. A duck is a girl and a drake is a boy. So if I have one duck, I only need one drake, right? If I have five ducks, I probably only need about one drake. If I have a hundred ducks, now we can actually define the question and we figured out what it depends upon. So let's, let's talk about what doesn't really sufficiently get the job done. We had at one time about 150 birds, but I would say it was about 120 ducks that were of mallard breed type, not counting the Muscovies. Out of that 120 ducks, which are really ducks, right? That's hard, isn't it now? Well, what do you call them? We really didn't have 120 ducks. We had about 105 to 110 ducks and about any given time 10 to 15 drinks. And that gets us very low um, fertility. When we would try to hatch eggs, we would get around a 30 to 35% hatch rate. So even with that poor ratio, you had fertile eggs. Just, you know, you'd put, you know, 20 eggs in and like six would hatch. The ratio you're looking for is four to six to one. So four to six ducks to each drake. So if you had a hundred ducks, then you would want somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 drakes to get enough fertility out of them. However, that's really not a good idea, in my opinion. And, and the reason for that is you're feeding 20 useless eaters when it comes to your drakes. You just don't need that many drakes. And when you have a duck feed bill that's that big, you know, pun not intended, feed bill, um, it, those bills eat a lot of food, and that adds up to a lot of bills. And it doesn't make sense to feed 20 birds that don't produce anything of economic gain. So if you have a small backyard flock, you know, right now, for instance, we have eight ducks and two drakes. I guarantee if we want to hatch any eggs, we got high fertility there. No problem. Um, so if you're up to like 20 ducks, you know, you're somewhere in the neighborhood of two to four drakes there, it's no big deal, right? Um, if you have a lot of ducks, and I just don't want that many drakes because of the economics behind it, but I've decided I want to make new ducks. Well, what you do is you fence off an area, and then you stock it with about one drake, and I would go like one drake to three ducks, for a period of time. Give them about a week. Give them some water, pools or whatever to breed in. Give them about a good week of breeding before you start harvesting eggs. Then harvest eggs for hatch. And then once you have enough eggs, just let them go back with the rest of the flock. Because then you're going to get heavy breeding, heavy fertility, and you don't have to have a lot of drakes in your general flock to get that done. So that's how I would handle that. Next up... Um, this comes from Josh. Josh says, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Sandy Hook lawsuit on the uh, the show. And there's a link to an article, and I, I don't know. There's there's so many articles on this, it doesn't really matter. I, for those that aren't sure what's going on here, what happened is the court said that the parents of the, of the children who died at Sandy Hook can indeed attempt to sue Remington Arms Company, the manufacturer of the gun that was used by the gunman. Now, this overturns a 2016 decision by a court that also said they couldn't do it because 
the way that Congress defined this was narrowly defined, and the maker would have to have not only willingly made the gun and made the gun work, but they would have had to in some way directly enabled someone who wasn't supposed to have a gun to get the gun. The new court decision says, hey, if you want to sue Remington, you can go ahead and sue Remington. So here's my issue with the right on this. Yes, I said the right. Um, they are A lot of you guys, I've seen you on Facebook, and so you're flipping out as though the court came out and said, Remington is liable for the death of these children. This is one of those ones where it's week one of the season of a sport that you pay attention to. Right? It's not, it's not, for me, it's not basketball, it's football. And it is at least the Steelers game. But if you lose, you don't flip. Because you really haven't affected the season much in that first week. And if it was basketball, and you liked basketball, it would really be that you don't get upset over a single loss at the beginning of a season in a basketball season. Because they play like, what, 160 or 180 or some stupid number of games, right? Um, because all this said is, well, you can attempt to sue them. You can, you can go forward with a lawsuit, and make your case that they are somehow responsible for the death of these children. I, I, I do think it is a frivolous lawsuit. Don't get me wrong here. But we also need to stay in touch with what happened. All that happened is that these people were told, you have a right to pursue this lawsuit. It doesn't mean that when they take it to the court, the first court that looks at it might not just say, you don't have a case. You don't have a case. Sorry. This is not, not going to fly. If they win and it goes into the appellate process, then it gets interesting. What I think will happen is that Remington will employ very good attorneys and slam dunk this and may end up with the plaintiffs being liable for Remington's cost to defend itself. And that would be the best outcome. That would be a better outcome than the court saying, no, you can't even sue. Here's why. The court said, no, you can't sue over and over and over and over again. And the anti-gun people have not gone away. They have continued. They will file new lawsuits. New, like, there's no limit. It's not like, okay, if you get charged with a crime and you get convicted, you have an appeals process. That appeals process can go up to appellate courts and eventually could conceivably go to the Supreme Court of the United States. But there's one path for it, and either you get it overturned or you don't, and when you hit the end of that path, it is done. If you are found innocent, thanks to our Constitution protecting against double jeopardy, it's also done. The state can't like come back and charge you with the same crime again. They can charge you with a different crime, but they can't charge you with the same crime again. It's over. When you're on the outside trying to sue somebody, just because court A says you can't doesn't mean you can't go to court B. You know That's what they do in federal court. They pick a judge they think will side with them. In a district, they think they can get away with it when they're suing the federal government. With a manufacturer, it's a little different, but there's still that avenue. There's a million ways to come back and try to do it again and try to do it again and try to do it again. What gets organizations like this attention is when they lose and when it costs them money. And I think if you are, because this is what the people that want to sue Remington are asserting. Remington made the gun to function as designed, and therefore they knew it could be used to kill lots of people. <sighs> 
So the manufacturer is suing, being sued for making a tool that works as advertised. And there's still going to be a standard of proof. As little trust as I have in government, there, in our court system, there's a modicum of reality left. And it's still going to be incumbent upon the people trying to sue Remington to prove that Remington not only built a tool that did its job, but they somehow did so in a way. Some form of their practice is specifically responsible for a young autistic man being able to get that gun when he wasn't supposed to be able to. Which, of course, he stole it from his parents. Now, look, I know the conspiracy people are going nuts right now. Right? I'm going to tell you, I am not a conspiracy theorist. However, there are some real questions that I have about Sandy Hook from footage, from the original coverage, from things like they had multiple people in custody. That all went memory hold is what they did with that. There's video. And if you can look it up yourself and watch it all you want, but I do not think it is completely the total nut job conspiracy theories, Alex Jones style. But something stinks. I'll give you that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about today. That's why I'm leaving it there. All right, That's to placate you so you'll calm down. But that's the question. Did Remington in some way enable a person who should not have had the gun to have the gun simply by the fact that they made it? Now, if you said to me, Jack, you're going to be an attorney in this case. You can choose to defend Remington or you can choose to, def to, to work with the plaintiffs and sue Remington. And you need to throw your ethics out here. Because obviously the way I feel, I would defend Remington. right? But if, if, if you said to me, look, it's going to be a mock trial. It's gonna, it won't have any actual impact. But it's going to be a real court and the real rules. And whoever wins gets $100 million like a game show. And you can either play Team A or Team B. And if you win your share of that $100 million, you're going to get $20 million. Pick your side. I would defend Remington. Because I don't think a good case can be made against them, even in an anti-gun climate. This isn't about whether or not there should be gun laws or not. This is about whether or not the person that made a gun is responsible for how it was used. If you're going to set that precedent, then if somebody gets in a car while they're drunk, drives the car down the road, and kills somebody, you're going to sue Ford because Ford made a car that could be driven when you were drunk. You see, and like... You can just keep drawing those analogies. And any court, no matter how shitty some of our court systems are, they do at least take into consideration the consequences of their decisions outside of the narrow niche within where it is defined. And I, I just don't see this turning into the disaster that everybody's losing their mind about. Again, if we get to the finals, then we can worry about it. And you're like, well, we got to stop it. Well, you're not going to stop it. Courts don't listen to protesters. You can't write letters to a judge and tell them they're wrong and get them to change anything. This is not this is not political in the sense that like an election cycle politics thing is. You're not going to change what's going to happen once you you get some idea of where this is going. Then you can decide. Well, I want to back this organization that's going to fight this in appellate court or something. Right now, this is just not worth getting your pants in a wad over. Uh, next up, I have said, yes, I have, and Greg says, I have heard this somewhere before. Jack Spirgo has said, the modern education system is in a death spiral. It's got 10 to 20 years left in it. 
and that in 10 to 15 years, probably half of all public education systems will be closing doors. I have said that. You can go back and listen to it. I started saying it probably about four years ago. I have been told many things in response to that, most of which involve me being crazy and pulling things out of my ass. Here, however, says, a Harvard professor says, half of all colleges won't exist in 10 years, and why a new model might provide a better path to career success. So now, the way I really want to examine this, let's examine this in the context of uh, a quote by Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair once famously said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. And if you want to talk about somebody who would seriously have their salary threatened by this, it would be a, a Harvard professor. A college professor, right? Yet he agrees with me on this. So why does he agree? Well, one of the things this professor mentions in this article is where he's being quoted from a speech he gave um, for Salesforce.org, uh, which is a software company uh, that man does customer management software. He said, during a speech last year, Salesforce.org, Hire uh, Ed Summit, Christensen said it cost almost $400,000 to get a degree from Harvard Business School, and that price point has made it such that only people who can afford it would be McKenzie consultants, hedge fund managers, and the like. Our customers need so much money in opening salary to need so much money and in opening salary to pay off their debt that we have overshot the salaries. In simpler terms, the return may just not uh, justify the investment. Now, When that's Harvard, but when you have students that are having one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in debt from schools that are far less known than Harvard for degrees that are basically they don't call it this anymore, but you know, like basically liberal arts or humanities type degrees, gender studies, even communications, marketing, etc., and they're looking at entry level jobs that pay thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. You know, your, your, your time to repay that is, is massive, right? I mean, if you make $30,000 a year, you don't go buy a $300,000 house. So financing a $300,000 degree doesn't make any sense either, especially when at least you can get out of the debt for the house with a bankruptcy, but you can never ex escape the education desk uh, debt. Now, what he actually compares this to is Amazon. It says, imagine if Amazon entered the higher education marketplace. Amazon has an almost unprecedented technology infrastructure and know-how. Amazon understands its customers' behavior to an incredible degree. Compare Amazon's ability to deliver what you want, how you want it, and when you want it to the average college or university, or even to the growing number of online universities, hybrid universities, especially to traditional institutions that offer online learning options. Amazon would crush those folks. Will Amazon do so? Probably not. I just used them as an example But some smart company will. And unless you work for a higher institution, that's okay. In fact, possibly more than okay. Ultimately, the goal of education, at least in career terms, is to provide graduates with the knowledge, skills, and at least some of the experience they need to begin the lifelong process of achieving success in their chosen field. A degree indicates that you know how to earn a degree. It doesn't necessarily mean you know how to do a job. 
Applicable knowledge matters more. Applicable skills matter. Applicable experience matters. Smart entrepreneurs and smart hiring managers care not so much about what you did in school, but what you can do on the job. And it's likely that soon a new educational business model will better deliver graduates who have just not a ticket and deliver more to those graduates because everyone willing to work for a ticket deserves to earn that ticket. But also more of the skills they need. They want to know how to do what they want to do. And they want to be able to learn in a way that is best for them, not for the provider. This is what people who hope to achieve big things really want. And that's what employers really want from their people. Win-win. Um, absolutely. And this is the, this is the question. You, if you want to know whether this scenario is going to happen, all you need to ask yourself is the following. If we look at the majority, not select few, not the doctors, Not the lawyers, not the specialized engineers or specialized scientists. The 90% of people that go to college, would it be possible to deliver as good or better of an education with a specifically designed curriculum run mostly by a computer? And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely fundamentally yes. Especially if you look at the Amazon model. This guy's brilliant for bringing the Amazon model up. So one of the things Amazon's really good with is working with other companies, and specifically with other brands. We've identified that our existing customer base really likes this particular thing here, and they'll go cut a deal with a really big brand so that they can tailor market that product to their customers. Think about this from an education standpoint. And this is you've, with Udacity and stuff, you've already seen some of this stuff start to happen. Uh, nano degrees for IBM and Google, etc., What do you need, giant employer? What do you need students showing up able to do? Well, we need this. So, okay, we'll build this curriculum for you. And as things change, we'll alter the curriculum on the fly. There's no textbook. We can change. We can add a new coding language. We can do whatever is necessary to get you what you're looking for. But what if we take that to an even higher level? And the way we can take something like that to another level is... Imagine being able to say, like, you're Amazon University, right? And you, you provide degrees for, for students and for companies. Like, whatever you want, we will make your degree on the fly. We'll, we'll create it. And if you're struggling, like, think about it this way. Like, so you, you go into college, you get in for a specific program, you start to struggle in it. Uh, you're, you're just at the beginning of a class, you realize, like, this is terrible. It's difficult to kind of switch your program up or whatever, but, like, Hey, like, you know, just, you're just not cut out for this. Here's something you are cut out for. And you're running an active database search on the other side for jobs that are available. Like, if you switch here, this, like, we're recognizing your strengths as you're going through this. And maybe you're not even failing at this, but you're really good at these things right here. And we're already matching you with prospective employers at the beginning of this program and channeling you to fit their exact needs by the time you come out the other end. And we're going to do all this in two years instead of four or one instead of four. You start to understand this. And then you can go to the employers and say, as we identify candidates that we're tracking towards you, we're already directing these people to work for you. We can have you guys provide basically dummy tasks. So you don't want to reveal specific company information if it's an analytics job or something like that. But you basically create dummy information where the student's coursework is actually doing the exact task that they will be doing as an entry-level employee at the school. So by the time they come out the other end of the machine, 
not only are they better suited than a candidate from a typical university, they actually already have on-the-job training as part of their course. Yeah, the, the, the giant vaulted institutions that we call universities can't compete with that. They can't compete with it. They can't compete with it. They can't compete with it. And this is what's coming. This is what's coming, and it's coming in a market where the opportunities for individual jobs is shrinking. And you're going to have to really, to compete in that world, you're going to have to be truly exactly what the, the, the employer is looking for in a candidate. And so you can either continue this generic approach where someone comes out with a degree in, in, in marketing, which means they also have you know a couple, couple of courses in French literature or something like that, um, so they can go make advertisements for a company at the sixth grade level for the audience. I mean, have you noticed like all the commercials, all the advertisings at basically like a fourth to sixth grade level? I mean, look at the pharmaceutical companies, right? They take a, a 70 or 80s pop song, turn it into a jingle, make the name of the drug sound like trust or something like that, and tresto, right? And then they put a song to it and show happy, sparkly people wandering around. You know, even if the drug is for something like, you know, not being able to breathe, and then the guy's out climbing a mountain or some stupid shit. Like, it, it's, it's done it. Like, do you really need somebody with a four-year degree that knows about French literature with a well-diversified background to come up with that? You don't, right? So how many jobs are there like that? There's only so many jobs like that as well. But when it comes to we need people that can come in and work on this particular system, we need people that can come in and perform this specific type of analysis, And you're able to now not even have like the nano degree thing where we eliminate stupid shit like French literature or whatever, you know, bitter, bitterness studies or, you know, how many genders are there more than you think 101, right? We, it's not just about eliminating that. What you're actually going to get to is a point where IBM can say next year we need 500 people with these qualifications, And then this institution that's run, you know, this, this online educational system that has people in the middle of that system that are, that are one year away from, you know, graduating with air quotes around it in this new paradigm basically says, we have out of the 500 you need, we have 1,000 great candidates. Why don't we formulate the offer for them to, to funnel their studies in your direction now and basically we'll, We'll, we'll put, you know, we'll put the offer out to all of them. We'll try to get like 600 to take you up on it. And so there's, you know, maybe some of them will fall out along the way. They won't work out. They'll decide they want to do something else. But basically for the company, it will be like, I would like to order 500 people with these capabilities, point, click, and buy delivery date 365 days later. That, how, does, how does Harvard compete with that? How does, how does UC Berkeley compete with that? How does Dallas University compete with that? How does TCU compete with that? How does Penn State compete with that? You know, how does the University of, of Colorado compete with that? How does anybody compete with that in a traditional brick-and-mortar model? And the answer is you don't. Again, I keep I, I, saying this when I bring this up. I'm not saying they're all going to go away. Just a shitload of them. And now you've got a Harvard professor who's who, who's, you know... Really got to really open his eyes to see this. Because you don't want to see this if you're this guy, right? Saying the same thing. It's almost like I know what I'm talking about sometimes, guys. So next up, I got an email here from Matt. And Matt said, dude, 
Tim Ferriss put this quote in his new lo- newsletter. Is Tim Ferriss on board? Here's what he put in his newsletter. And it wasn't his quote, but it was from a guy named Chuck Palakanuk, I guess is how you say his name. Old George Orwell got it backwards. Big Brother isn't watching. He's singing and dancing. He's pulling rabbits out of a hat. Big Brother's busy holding your attention every moment you're awake. He's making sure you're always distracted. He's making sure you're fully absorbed. He's making sure your imagination withers until it's as useful as your appendix. He's making sure your attention is always filled and is being fed. It's worse than being watched. With the world always following you, no one has to worry about what's in your mind. With everyone's imagination atrophied, no one will ever be a threat to the world, end quote. Hmm. Um, This is really about self-policing monkeys. So if we take it back to other forms of control, and we think of something like, you know, the the ultimate in, in horrifying control and excessive state power and state-based murder, uh, Nazi Germany. And we take it back to Nazi Germany, we, we'd like to believe that by the time the war was raging and the full horror of what Hitler and his ilk were doing, that most of the people that lived in Germany were like just really scared and just going along to get along. And if somebody did something against the state, they wouldn't have said anything. They wouldn't have done anything. They would have let it go. Um, they would have just hoped. And they just all sat there and hoped and waited for us to come. Well, if that was the case, the war would have been a lot shorter because, you know, the German soldiers would have stopped fighting. You can only, you can only do so much with conscription and, and, and getting men to fight under threat of what happens if they don't, et cetera. There's a limit to what that is. Um, And then, you know, you wouldn't have had all the factories keep running and everything. And In fact, the reality is most of the people in Germany during World War II did go along to get along and in, in many instances just turned their back to what was being done that was evil. Uh, many of them were fully insulated from that evil. And there were plenty of them, I'm sure, that if they thought, you know, Joe over here was, uh, you know, Uh, getting getting Jews out of Germany would have knocked them out to the SS, right? They, there was a self-policing monkey concept going on in Nazi Germany. And I don't want to do the whole story again, but the self-policing monkeys is about the experiment done with the monkeys, put four monkeys in a room, give them a pole, put bananas on top of the pole. They go up the pole, you spray them with ice-cold water, and then you start taking monkeys out of the room. Eventually you end up in a situation where none of the monkeys will climb the pole, Because as you take monkeys out, the ones that got sprayed, when a new monkey comes in, they beat the ass of the monkey trying to climb the pole for his own good. And eventually you have no monkeys that ever got sprayed. They have no idea, but yet they won't let anybody climb the pole. Right Now, what, what I've said repeatedly about this country is we are a neo-fascist state. Neo means new. We are a new, that's what, when you're neoconservative, it means new conservative. I don't know if anybody ever explained that to you. So when I say neo-fascist, new fascism. And fascism is an economic system where the state and industry collaborate and use the differences between the classes to the advantages of both. That is the textbook version of fascism. Fascism does not necessarily mean Nazi. It doesn't necessarily mean concentration camps. It doesn't even necessarily mean racism in the context of this group must be eliminated, i.e. genocide. It is a system of control. Now, when... This nation over time and the people in power have gotten more and more nuanced with this system of control and the monkeys policing each other. Rather than one monkey ratting out the other monkey that this guy's breaking the law, 
What we now have is a system where the monkeys, which is us, all ostracize anybody that doesn't you know, walk around with a phone in front of their face, doesn't wear the right kind of clothing, doesn't go to the right school, etc. Basically, it's, it's a twisted form of peer pressure. And, and, and Uncle Sam, big brother, is the ringmaster. Like, the, the guy's got the, the quote's good because there's only so many ways you can explain something in a simple quote like that. But the government, big brother here, isn't really the clown dancing on top of the car. The big brother is the ringmaster. Let's look over here and over here we have this going on, ladies and gentlemen. Up here on the trapeze we got this going on. And how many clowns are in that car? Ask Clown Circus 2020. And everybody's petting. Oh, and look at Kim Kardashian's ass. And over here Taylor Swift is saying something. And oh my God, you have to pick a side. And you know you want to see people get pissed? Tell them you don't vote. Then they flip out, right? They flip out because they just assume that if you did, you'd vote the way they wanted to. So you get self-policing there. And you get this concept that conformity is the only thing that's right. You bring up the vaccine issue that we're going to talk about in a few moments. And if you say anything other than I will completely 100% blindly obey 49 injections for my child by the time they are five years of age, then you are ostracized as anti-science, anti-vax, anti-everything. Even if you are willing to complete the vaccination schedules more slowly. Just to mitigate risk, you're attacked for it. The self-policing monkeys. And what it is, is it, it's the ringmaster with his hand up a bunch of different puppets ass, controlling you through attention. That's all it is. Thanks for letting me know about that, Matt. And I think uh, Tim probably, based on what I know of Tim, is smart enough that, yeah, he probably is on board. Um, next up, real quick here, John and Moore Park sent me this email, and it's an article from CNN. Um And it says, if Instagram were to disappear tomorrow, as effectively it did yesterday, it would be detrimental to an entire tier of influencers who have built and monetized their personal brands on the black of the singular platform. And I'm not going to read the rest of the article to you uh, from it, but because that's enough to explain this. But I, I don't think people really understand the real lesson here. And uh, so John says, prove again not to focus on a singular platform. And that's true to a degree. But the, the, the whole point of these platforms, like an Instagram, like a Facebook, like a YouTube, all of these should be is on-ramps to your brand. On-ramps to your brand. And if you are not doing something, if you have an Instagram following, to get those Instagram people to somehow connect with you beyond Instagram. And that doesn't mean also to like you on Facebook and also to subscribe to your YouTube channel. That's all fine and good and well, too. But you should be doing something to get them to engage with you. If you're truly an influencer on any of these social media platforms, then getting people to subscribe to your email list should not be that difficult. At least the people that are most loyal. And it may be the person with a 250,000 following on Instagram may only have 20,000 people on their email list. That's very possible. But you know what? Those 20,000 people are the people that they actually have the most influence with. And there's an old thing, the 20% rule. And it, it is a many takes on the 20% rule. But the biggest one is that 20% of people do 80% of the work in any given organization. Your top 20% are responsible for 80% of your results. It doesn't change when you go to being the brand and you're looking at your customers. 20% of your customers provide 80% or more of your revenue. They, have, they provide 80% or more of your ability to influence others. They provide... Uh, 80% of being completely receptive to what you have to say. 
And so when we look at something like just recently what happened with Instagram and Facebook going down, and again, I notice people that don't use those platforms, they think they're wasteful. You're like, oh, it's a bunch of kids crying. No, you don't understand the size of the businesses that have been built on these platforms. Um, I know one couple, for instance, that run their business primarily through Instagram. They make about $350,000 a year. Two people. They make $350,000 a year. And they do almost everything because of the influence they have on Instagram. Now, you could say, like, well, it's just stupid kids or whatever, but most of you that would say that, you're not making $350,000 a year. So, obviously, that tool works for them in their industry. Right? Okay. So, what do you think? Like, this article has all these people that are wailing and gnashing their teeth about not being able to get things done because Instagram and Facebook were down for a day. Hold on. Do you know what this couple that I'm talking about did when this went on? They took a day off. Because all their revenue is outside of Instagram. And all of their, their effort is to convert the Instagram watcher and engage her into an actual direct customer. And if you're doing that, then when this kind of thing happens, it's not that big a deal. Now, the, the, the problem would be, even for this couple, well, what if Instagram goes down forever? And that's not likely, but what if they go down? Because they've had their channel shut down from time to time. They even rode through several weeks of that. They did fine. didn't really hurt their revenue that much. But eventually it would. So it has to be a combination approach for those of you that are building brands online today. And understand that it's not just if it goes down or if they kick you out or if they take away your account or whatever. All of these platforms ebb and flow as to who is actually most dominant at the time. So you need to be on more platforms. Yeah, that is, that is right. But if you're not converting platform engagement into direct engagement, you truly are sharecropping. And as soon as the lord of the manor decides you don't get to rent that, that little 40-acre uh, field next year, you're out of business. You have no uh, mobile infrastructure, none at all, uh, with your, your farm, right, if you're in that situation, right? So the way Joel Salatin teaches people to uh, build a farm business is buy no land, lease land, buy portable infrastructure, take 80 acres, Put a couple hundred pigs on it. Start moving them through that 80 acres. If that time, by the time you're done with that cycle, if the guy that you lease that land from says, I don't want to lease it to you again, you just pick all your shit up and move it somewhere else. And that's the approach that you need to be taking today in building a business online. Otherwise, sooner or later, you're going to get purged. You're going to get slaughtered. You know, Imagine if I had built TSP on Patreon. And then Patreon did some of the things they've done recently. And by ethics, I felt the need to leave. So I quit doing Patreon. That, that did happen. Imagine if I built the entire MSB on Patreon. Imagine if my entire income was beholden to following the rules that Patreon sets for me. Versus some software I bought and installed on my server. Just saying. Um, next up, Dylan sends me this email. And it says, where is your herd immunity now, Uncle Sam? U.S. Navy ship has been quarantined for two months because of a virus outbreak. Um, I think the important thing here is that the government is a whole bunch of lying liars in this one. Let me read this, just two sentences to you, and then I'll tell you why they're lying liars. Then I'm going to tell you what a Fenord is and tell you how this is a textbook Fenord. So, 
the U.S. Navy warship deployed in the Persian Gulf has been quarantined at sea for more than two months because of a viral outbreak. A rare move by the U.S. Navy revealed Wednesday after an inquiry from CNN. A viral infection, periotitis, with symptoms similar to the mumps, has spread across the USS Fort McHenry, a, a Woodbury Island-class dock landing ship, affecting 25 sailors and Marines. Symptoms of the illness appeared for the first time in December of last year. Six sailors were quarantined aboard the vessel and treated on board for medical facilities. While their living areas were cleaned out and disinfected, no one had been medevaced off the ship, CNN reported Wednesday afternoon, but it's very unusual for U.S. warships to spend more than two months at sea without a port call. All right, <clears throat> how's that a lying liar? Okay, let me, this is the important line. A viral infection, peritidis, with symptoms similar to the mumps. Okay. Most people would read that and go, oh, it's, a, it's not the mumps, but it's like the mumps. No, it's the mumps. It's the mumps. And, the re and I, I got feedback. I got pushback from the, you know, the, the 100% I obey and worship the ass of the state and kiss the butthole of the state with all things vaccine, 100%, no matter what they say, um, were upset with me. Well, they're, they're, so they started, at least they started looking up. They said, well, there's more than one thing that causes parotitis. Okay, you're correct. Uh, primarily, they are uh, the mumps, uh, meningitis, uh, and a type of influenza, which would be dun, 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 the flu. Okay, um, there really is not, the thing is, there is no viral infection called parotitis. That's not a thing. Peritonitis is a symptom. Peritonitis is a swelling of the, the, the glands in the throat. It's the mumps. This is the mumps. There's nothing else that this is other than the mumps. A bunch of U.S. sailors on a boat got a case of the mumps. Now, here's the thing. It's about, if you do all the math, it's about 3.5% of the people on the boat got the mumps. Mumps, of course, is part of the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. Before I go forward with that, I really need to drive home the wordplay that's going on here. A viral infection, peritonitis, with symptoms similar to the mumps. What if this said, a viral infection, fever, with symptoms similar to the flu? What would you say? Be like, bullshit, they have the why are you saying that? And if they, look at the way it's structured. A viral infection, comma, parotitis, comma, with symptoms similar to the mumps, comma. Depends on what your definition of the word is. is. This is wordplay. You're trying to, to, to not lie and not tell the truth at the same time. Do you, you, you see how this happens? Right? So it's a 3% infection rate. What is the, what is the rate of effectiveness according to the CDC and the vaccine manufacturers for the MMR vaccine? The answer is 97%. It's 97% effective. So a 3% infection rate of the mumps on a closed environment like a ship, if one person there happens to somehow contract the mumps, is ex completely and totally expected. That's, that's like, that means the vaccine did exactly what it was supposed to do. It prevented 97% of the people from coming down with the actual disease. So why the wordplay? Well, Dylan hit on it. Herd immunity. You see, if, um, if at least 95% or more of the population is vaccinated, 
then we shouldn't have any real outbreaks of the disease. So that's why it's the fault of a homeschooler in Louisiana who did not vaccinate her children that somebody in Washington has the measles. That's the case the government's making as they freak out about a few hundred cases of measles where nothing really happens. Right? Nothing really happens. Compared to deaths by car accident, this is not even around the air. With the total infections of measles, let alone any serious consequences. But we have to lose our minds about it to protect the monopoly of vaccine manufacturers and to keep them 100% from ever facing any accountability from anything that ever goes wrong in their world. This is a textbook FNORD. What is a FNORD? F-N-O-R-D, FNORD. While it comes from other places as well, it was made most famous in a book Uh, by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. It was the Illuminatus Trilogy, which is really three books in one. And they never actually tell you what a Fenord is in the book. But, you know, it's, uh, one of the characters all of a sudden is, is running around looking at the newspaper and going, I see the Fenords, I see the Fenords. And a Fenord is a piece of disinformation. A piece of information that the normal person reads, and it changes the way they think in such a way that makes the state, whoever put it out there, in control of your thoughts. And the funny thing about Fnords is they only work when you don't see them. Say that again. They only work when you don't when you see them, they stop working on you. That's why the guy in the book is like, I see the Fnords, I see the Fnords. Because once you see the Fnords, they can no longer control you. So when you read something like this, a viral infection, paratitis with symptoms similar to the mumps, you're like, no bullshit, that's the mumps. And somebody's going to ride me with some weird condition or something that can cause this symptom. It won't change reality here. There's, there's really only three things that are viral that would apply to the way this is being done that would require a ship to stay at sea until it's done, right? And that is meningitis. A, a specific form of influenza, which it's like paratoidal influenza or something like that, or the mumps. There really isn't anything else. And even if there was, then why don't you call it that? Why do you call it the symptom? What if it said a viral infection spotted rash with symptoms similar to measles? That would be a direct analogy. That is a direct analogy. A viral infection, paratitis, with symptoms similar to the mumps, is as a viral infection, spotted rash, with symptoms similar to the measles. If, if they put that in there, a viral infection, spotted rash, with symptoms similar to the measles, you'd be like, what? Who the hell, who phrases words that way? Why is this important? It's important because, number one, you deserve to have your gut. It ain't going to happen. Okay, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you deserve to have your government be honest with you. You deserve to have your media be honest with you, and neither of them will do it, so it is incumbent upon you to figure out when they're lying. Now, the bigger thing on the vaccine stuff here, look, I'm going to say this again. I've said it so many times. I'm ready to just, the next per, I just want to take the next person that calls me anti-vax, invite them over to my home. When I open the door, punch them in the face throw them over the fence, and, and say, from now on, whenever anybody does that, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get punched in the face and thrown over the fence. I am not anti-vax. I am absolutely not anti-vaccine. I believe that vaccines in general are safe and in general are effective. I believe they are also nowhere near as safe as we are told that they are. 
And the reason I believe that is because I've talked to way too many people who've had children with very serious reactions. That doesn't mean they have autism or they can't walk or they have Guillain-Barre. I'm talking, I took my child to get a vaccination. They got a vaccination. They spiked a fever of 103 degrees. Our pediatrician said it's perfectly normal not to worry about it. I ended up at the ER with them being given IV fluids and, and having a high fever for three days before eventually it went away. And then, yeah, they seem to kind of return to normal. And then they go back to their pediatrician and say, well, you know, th is this going to be reported? Oh, no, it wasn't serious. Okay, no, I'm sorry. That's a serious reaction. Sue LaPreeze on our expert council said in a comment to one of my videos on this, when, my, when I was told by my doctor that my child's reaction would not be reported because it wasn't serious, I figured I should get serious about understanding this issue. All right? So with all of that, how am I pro-vax? Because I do believe the, even though the number they give that, uh, that having serious reactions is one in a million chance is a bullshit number. Because all those instances, thousands upon thousands of them that go unreported aren't in that number. That in general, that you are better off vaccinated than not vaccinated. I really believe that. I also think that if I, if I give my child five vaccinations, and I know it's not five shots. Don't pretend to be stupid, right? In that situation, it would be three shots, MMR and two other individual injections. If I give my child those five injections on one day, and they have a predisposition to have a reaction that the combination of all of them together can make the reaction worse. Worse yet, I don't know what one they reacted to. And if I have a doctor and I'm a dummy instead of being smart like I am that tells me that my child having a spike the high fever for three days isn't serious, I might just go do it again. Instead of going, you know what, huh? We've got some immunity, immunity from that vaccine. We're gonna, we're gonna defer the follow-up vaccine to that one thing until the child's older and more developed. Because they're already vaccinated, right? This is a completely reasonable approach. This isn't anti-science. Here's the interesting thing. Right after I put out this video, I had tons of people telling me I was anti-vax, anti-science, crap like that. So I put out a little word question. I saw just, just a little text thing. And it said, is 100% obedience to megacorporations and government ever a good idea. And almost 100% of the response was absolutely not, including many of the people who came down on me for my stance on vaccines that I just outlined. I don't even think they understood. I mean, this was, this was like a day apart. I don't even think they saw the connection. And do you know why? Because they don't see the Fenords. I put out a thing that said, Fenords only affect those that don't see them. Change my mind. A little Crowder meme. No one got it. A few did. But in general, no one got it. This is a Fenord. A viral infection. Insert symptom here with symptoms similar to the mumps. Hey, so let's do it that way again. <laughs> let, let's, let, here, here, let me see if I can help you see the Fenord. A viral infection with this particular symptom with symptoms similar to the mumps. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't use wordplay Unless you're hiding something. If they had you know, a, a, a variety of the flu, they would say influenza, a viral infection with symptoms similar to the mumps. A mump-like version of the flu. Right? They wouldn't put this... Like, there's, there's actually a lot of wordsmithing 
that goes into that. And how many people would buy? You know why I did this? Okay, so I looked at it. I looked at it. And I said, peritonitis. I don't know what that is. It doesn't sound like an illness. It doesn't sound like measles or mumps or rubella or the flu or influenza or meningitis. It doesn't sound like an illness. It, it sounds symptomish. What is it? So I Googled it, and all the results came up for is why you should get a mumps vaccine. So I did more research and found out the word means swelling of the glands that swell when you have the mumps. And then I said, okay, well, what causes that? And I found the common causes of it. Well, if this boat had meningitis, you'd have a lot worse than a 3% infection rate with nobody being evac If they had a flu, they would say they had the flu. This was carefully constructed. And all it took was Googling the word. It took more than that eventually, but all it took to like confirm that there's probably something here. Should look further. Probably a lie was Googling the word. How many people would just read that and go, oh, they have peritonitis? Yeah. And that's what they're relying on, because you don't see the Fenords, people. Look for the Fenords. Speaking of not seeing what's right in front of you, um, so there's an article that's in the show notes today. It's um, on uh, chrismartinson.com. Actually, it's, it's by Chris Martinson, uh, but it's on peakprosperity.com, which is his website. And here's a quote from the article, because I'm, I'm long on the show today, so I want to wrap up. Despite serious flaws, the Green New Deal sparks a needed conversation. And then uh, Aaron, who sent me this, says, seems you might have called. There's a link to the article I'll provide in the show notes today. So what I said a few weeks ago when this thing first came out was, no one actually is supposed to take this thing seriously, but you will because you're that easily led. That this was a Trump-like tactic. And, and, and Ocasio-Cortez, being a useful idiot, is the perfect vector to deliver this thing, right? So she didn't come up with this on her own. If you look at the Green New Deal and you look up something called Project Venus that really came about in the 1970s, it's, it's exactly Project Venus. It was in um, one of the Zeitgeist films, Project Venus. And it's this concept that we'll have high-speed rail that take us to Hawaii. And all this nonsense is in Project Venus. And it's a very futuristic look at things. And a lot of the stuff in it, are at least eventually doable. But when you tell somebody that this is a Trump-like tactic, they're like, what? What? Donald Trump is nothing like Ocasio-Cortez. Didn't say they were like each other. So the tactic is the same. You can have a, a criminal and a hero use the same tactic. Right? I mean, you could have a man and a woman are different, no matter what your advanced gender studies class told you. Um, how can you have gender studies if there's no difference in the gender? Anyway, I digress. Right? So you can have a man and a woman use the same tactic. They're, they're not the same people. Right? You know, a Democrat and a Republican use the same tactic. They're not the same people. You can have people with completely different ideologies use the same tactic. What is the tactic? The tactic, ironically, Green New Deal, is the art of the deal. You take an extreme position. You take an extreme position. I am going to build a wall from one end of the country to the other. It will be a great, big, beautiful wall, 99 feet tall, and Mexico will pay for it. But what we need is 500 miles of wall. It's with the, and yeah, I mean, they already paid for it in the, the new NAFTA deal. And, I, and then any position you fall back to seems reasonable. That's what the Green New Deal is. 
I mean, if once you start seeing pattern rate, like, I, how did you know? Because that's, first of all, it's Project Venus. So it's been around for like 40 years, this idea, this concept. Really has. Promise you they didn't just make it up. Really has. The concept is, okay, we're going to replace all fossil fuel in 10 years. Well, no, you're not. No one, even the people saying it, believe that. Just like no one... Okay, no one that was a thinking person really thought they were going to get a wall from sea to shining sea in Mexico was going to write a check for it. No one thought that. That is an extreme position. It was an extreme position. So then you can compromise from the extreme position. You start the dialogue, you look at all the reasons this can't happen, and then what happens is your opposition begins to talk about, well, but we could do this. And we could do this. We don't need a wall. We need technology. Notice nobody tells you what the technology is going to do. They don't want to deport anybody. They don't want to stop anybody from coming in. But also this magic technology that I bet you the guy that's lobbying them is is selling, right, is is the way to go. Right? It's, it's, just, it's nonsense. But it works. The extreme position always works. And if you read Art of the Deal, it's right out of Art of the Deal. Does that mean that Ocasio-Cortez is the smartest Trump? I don't, I don't think so. I don't actually think Trump's that particularly smart. Um, but I think Ocasio-Cortez is a moron. And, and not because of you know a picture that makes her look stupid. Because if you do still imagery of a video, you can make anybody look stupid if you keep stopping the frame to find the point they look the worst. Try it sometime. Sit on your TV set, watch somebody you like, and hit the pause button randomly a few times to see how retarded you can make them look. Right, I, I judge Ocasio Cortez on what she actually says and professes to believe. And I, I just judge Ocasio Cortez because she has a degree in economics and doesn't understand money at all, even a little bit. I actually think she probably doesn't think her position's extreme. That, that she's dumb enough to actually think that this was a good idea and somebody just helped her a little bit. And she's in charge now. She's the boss, and we should all shut up. But the people behind this, they know the position's extreme. But hey, you know if you can sell a couple hundred billion dollars worth of solar panels with it, then, hey, that's worth doing. You know, nobody thinks we're going to give up all our cows. Nobody thinks we're going to take a train to Hawaii. But where can we take a train to? And, and some of the proposal, if we look at it that way, is not completely ridiculous. What about a high-speed train that, let's say, went between Dallas and Chicago, made two or three stops along the way at major ports, and could get you from Dallas to Chicago in five hours? It's doable. I don't trust the government to do it, but it's doable. If such a thing existed and I needed to go to Chicago, I wouldn't fly. Have you ever taken trains? So much better. You show up, you get on the train, the train leaves. You want to change your train, you leave on the next train. No big deal. You don't have to show up four hours in advance to have your ass felt up to take a train. right? I mean, seriously. Even post-9-11, guys, I'm sorry. It's just the way trains work. So, yeah, I... I, I can see where some of this might actually even be effective. I think we are going to move to more renewable energy sources and things like that because technology, right? Because technology. But the purpose of this thing was never to be a thing in of itself. Now, what's funny is all of the Asplon Circus candidates have grabbed onto it with a race to go to the most extreme left. But I think most of them are smart enough to know that it's, You take an extreme position to start a discussion so you can move the ball in the direction you want the ball to go. I'm not making an opinion here on the direction the ball should move. I'm just telling you what they're doing. 
So anyway, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. As always, if you like the work we do, you can support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Remember, if you find it at tspaz, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, or I would not recommend it to you. Today's item of the day is sand, salt, surf, and sun wicking fishing shirts. Um, they, these really are designed with the fisherman, the beachgoer in mind. Uh, I love the, the microfiber fabric. It is great. But they really should be called outdoor shirts. When I'm working outside, especially here in Texas in the summer, I, I end up like, I'm outside for like two hours. I come and take a shirt off. You know, I'm not going to take a shower because I'm going right back out to work. Just throw it in the laundry and go get another shirt because it's just wringing, disgusting, wet from being out in the Texas heat, sweating. And to the point where my wife's like, we got to do something. Like, I'm doing 30 shirts a week in the laundry just for you, just T-shirts. And when I found these, I was like, this is it. This is the thing. They block the sun really great, and they wick away that sweat so they don't end up sopping wet. They have long sleeves, short sleeves. They have, like, generic plain ones that are very inexpensive, just different colors. And they have ones with, you know, designs and stuff on them that are pretty cool. You can check them out again. The brand is called Sand, Salt, Sun, uh, Sand, Salt, Surf, and Sun. Uh, really great clothing, about the best price in, in clothes like this that I have found. Uh, I own a bunch of, of their product. I think if you give them a try, you'll like them too. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you support us no matter what you eventually buy. That brings us to our song of the day. And we are going into Journey Week. We're going to take a Journey with Journey. Journey is one of my all-time favorite uh, bands. And we are going to go through five Journey songs this week, uh, none of which are the really big hits. You know, we're not going to be doing, you know, Wheel in the Sky or or Faithfully or anything like that. And they're great songs. But, you know, one of the things we do with the uh, song of the day is try to expose you to songs that maybe you never heard or that you've forgotten about. I think today's is going to be one that will fall into a lot of that for, for many people. This is from 1979. It only charted up to the top to, uh, on, on, on the charts to number 70. So that's, that's not even, that doesn't even get radio play in a lot of the United States if you don't hit top 40, especially back then. The song was called Too Late. Uh, according to the liner notes of Journey's Time 3 compilation album, lead singer Steve Perry wrote this song about a friend from his hometown, a drug addict. He wanted to warn to leave town before he ran out of options. Quote, the drugs were setting up housekeeping, end quote, said Perry. The friend eventually heard the tune. And Perry told him what it was about. Um, I don't know that leaving town will solve the problems of a drug addict. It may get them away from their enablers that provide them with drugs if they're trying to get off the drugs. But what solves the problem of a drug addict is addressing the addiction. But the concept of if you go too long, you get to a point where it's too late is true with so many uh, behaviors, not just drug use, so many addictive behaviors, so many poor behaviors, so many bad decisions. There, the, there's a concept that we say in America, no one is irredeemable, that everybody deserves a second chance, that everybody deserves the, the ability to, uh, to try to rectify and straighten out their life. But there is a point where you can step too far, where you can't come back, either because you break the first rule of survival, which is dying, or you end up in prison for the rest of your life. Or you injure yourself in such a way that even if you can kind of sort of put your life back together, it can never be what it could have been. There are consequences to actions. We need to be aware of that. 
and we find ourselves taking self-destructive behaviors, we need to act before it's too late. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Stay.